0: Hey, pull up a chair. Attacks on tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy.
1: These four horrible radical left
0: Democrat investigations of your all time favorite president, me, is just a continuation of the most disgusting witch hunt. In
2: the history of our country, it's gone on forever with Russia, 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 and Ukraine, 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 and the Mueller hoax.
1: Well, Mike, there you have it.
2: Yeah, I thought it was a warlock hunt, by the way, not the <laughs> not the quibble with the the president there. But
1: as we start to record today's podcast, Mike, I keep checking my phone to see if we have any news. Uh, as predicted uh, by none other than the apparent soon-to-be defendant himself, Donald Trump believes. Sometime today he will be indicted and/or arrested. They've put up some scaffolding or some bike rack around uh, the court in New York, and, and we, we, we await, Mike, what happens? So we'll talk a bit about that. <laughs>
2: we will we will what uh yeah glad they had the bike rack up for the 26 brooks brothers young republicans <laughs> who were there you know um uh, uh, th- threatening to threatening to tear up the building uh cuz i'm waiting for the army to show up uh the army of trump lunatics and uh looks like recruitment's a little thin in in the uh, borough of manhattan these days for uh you know uh the uh, uh, trump troublemakers but anyway this, this thing is big And we wanted to talk about it with somebody, well, who knows his way around indictments, multiple, multiple indictments. I kid. I kid. We really wanted to dive (laughs) into the Iowa caucus and Republican primary politics in general. So we went we we went to the best. This is a fun introduction for me, an old friend of mine who I first met in the trenches of the Iowa Republican world in 1993 or 4, when we were doing the re-elect change, uh, Governor Terry Five Terms Brandstead's, uh campaign in Iowa. <laughs> we're talking about the great David Kochel joining us. Well, thank you, Mike and Robert. Good to see you both. We are happy to have you. Well, let me do Puffed Up Bio here for a minute, just because you got a great one. He's worked at the top level of politics all over. Been the ED of the Iowa State Party, run 100 caucuses. The idea, excuse me, the ED of the Michigan Party, been a top advisor to Mitt Romney, to Jeb Bush, the current Iowa Senator, uh, the one and only Joni Ernst. You know, Mr. Iowa, but also Mr. National GOP politics. So, David, you're just a guy to help us sort out the, the caucus, which is going to be so big in the upcoming Republican contest. Not so much the Democratic contest. They uh, nope. they lost their abacus last time and couldn't really get it right. But we'll get into all that a little later. Right now we got indictment fever all over the news. I did a hit on MSNBC last night and, you know, there's a lot of hyperventilating going on. So <laughs> Gibbs, let me start with you as somebody yeah. who's uh, um, been in the middle of uh, Many a crises in the, in the press but, and everything. But
1: thankfully, no indictments. So no no just, indictments. Just I've to, never just been, been indicted either, out there and I now. was
2: kidding about Conchal. I have been <laughs> hauled in front of a grand jury before. And I remember the uh, and the Christy Whitman thing where Ed w- Rounds got a little snookered and told the Sperling breakfast next morning that he paid off all the ministers. I'd run that campaign in 1993 uh, when she won the governorship, and uh, I have a lot of memories of that, including the FBI dropping by my office to rifle the files and then haul me in front of a grand jury to try to figure out what happened. I will add that nothing happened, which is what the investigation uh, showed. But it is a character-building experience uh, <laughs> when a grand jury... Uh, gets interested. I was not a target, I should say. I, they were just trying to find facts. What, what's going on in Trumpville right now with all this? I mean, it, quickly to frame it, it strikes me that this is the weakest of the three. So it is an opportunity for Trump to get out the violin and scream politics. And -hmm. there's just enough politics around uh, what's an accounting misdemeanor here uh, that he might get a little traction on it. And as a Trump hater, it it worries me that it could undercut the big Georgia and big special counsel stuff coming down the road, which is, I think, far more important. But straighten us out, Gibbs, and then, Katja, you can tell me who's right.
1: Well, I think there's um – uh look, I, I think a lot of people probably correctly surmise, and you see this already. You know, Mike Pence, fresh off of his gridiron missive where he said, you know, Donald Trump put my family in danger, quickly says, Oh, this is all political. You're seeing other candidates say this is all political. I have no doubt that Trump comes through or into this a bit strengthened politically because, quite frankly, this is what he's always wanted to do. In the face of a grand jury whether it's in Georgia or in New York, he wants to push this through the political filter in a very confused, very, very sharply partisan world. So I have no doubt he does that. And just, Mike, to your point, a little bit of background on the case, right? The the real rub seems to me to be whether this is a misdemeanor, as you mentioned, or if it's a felony. And the previous DA looked into this. There's some interesting wording in the New York law that it becomes a felony only if this is, basically to cover up another crime. And the question is whether you can cover up a federal FEC crime, whether that counts. The previous district attorney declined to pursue this case. The current one is. Uh, So I think that's the rub in your point as to whether you could do a pretty easy misdemeanor conviction versus an indictment for a felony. So it'll, it'll be fascinating to watch what is in the indictment if and when there is one. And two, what the proof is, because remember, the big witness in this case is going to be Michael Cohen, uh, who already spent a little time making license plates in New York, uh, for, uh, for, for actually being involved in this. And, you know, Trump basically reimbursing him to pay off Stormy Daniels when, when Trump was president. So I, I think there's a little bit of, you know, concern around is your star witness really somebody who's, basically already been part of this crime versus what michael cohen says is look you don't have to believe me just believe all the paper that's circulating around with all this so again i think probably strengthens trump in the short term politically i I don't know though that in the end just because this one feels a little looser and maybe a a little bit more uh political than some of the others i'm not entirely sure that he's going to come out of this in the long run being anything other than a multiply indicted former president seeking some level of redemption. Kachal,
2: what's going on?
0: Well I think, you know, Robert's right. This is of the three, this is probably the weakest. Uh you got Georgia and then you got the federal look into the documents and, and January sixth. But um it it has shown itself to be kind of a rallying effect, to have a rallying effect among Republicans when you've got Speaker McCarthy out talking about you know, Soros and and the political motivation here and a bunch of other Republicans, kind of some from, uh, you know, sort of some Trump skeptics even kind of backing him up here. Even the DeSantis statement, you know, was a pretty full throated a- attack on the prosecution. But but at the sort of at the bottom of this uh, and this is what, you know, as an Iowan kind of looking at this uh and how you know our politics and I were dominated a lot by social conservatives you know there's still a story here about hush money to a porn star and you know that's going to have its own kind of lingering effect i think even though it does appear to be politically motivated um it it dredges up all the stuff about trump that people are you know kind of get uncomfortable with so the initial kind of rally around him protect him from uh these unfair you know prosecutors. You know, they're calling them persecutors now. Um, I, I still think it'll, you know, it's got a downside to it. And and Robert's right. Uh, you know, even though this might be the weakest, uh, if he does get indicted, arrested, have the, you know, have the mugshot go around the internet for a couple of days. I don't think it's going to be good for him in the long term.
2: Yeah, I, I, I'm torn on that. On one hand, it's another log on the blazing inferno of Trump fatigue including in the Republican electorate, which the data keeps showing us. On the other hand, it's perfectly tribal. I mean, I can imagine the street talk in Republican and, you know, yeah, Trump's massively unfit. I'd like to lock him up on Mars forever. But in the Republican reality of the of the primary, the street talk is going to be, wait a minute. So Trump had a sex scandal. And now they're after him on some accounting charge with a liberal elected D.A. from the most liberal city other than San Francisco in the country. You know, where was Clinton's indictment for his sex scandal? You know, this is all a setup. I I mean, I can hear that having resonance. Now, I don't know if it saves Trump's downward spiral, as you say, David, in the primary, because I think it is more fatigue. But this is like of the three indictments, the easiest for Trump to try to turn it into a tribal persecution thing. And
1: politically, I wonder if that starts to poison the other ones that are both H-bombs, in my view, by comparison. But let me ask you, both of you, this, because I I, to add another uh, sort of facet to this, Murphy, what's fascinating is, even as I think the party feels like it wants to maybe align with Trump beliefs but not the Trump persona in the next nominee – It now seems like everybody's rushing to a microphone to denounce the the persecution of one Donald Trump. And doesn't that rally essentially rally the party around Trump? Even as you said, I think correctly, this is another, you know, kind of evidence point that do we really want to go through an election in four more years of this? Well, I think it's more screw the Democrat you know,
2: a mob that's after Trump of liberal New York prosecutors and as we love Trump. I mean, he you know, it's more tribal than loving Trump. And I worry there are some cynical Democrats here who are like, yeah, let's overplay our hand uh, politically and let's try to get some blowback because we'd love to see Trump nominated again because he's the easiest to beat, which is true, but dangerous. You know, I don't I, I think if I I think American patriots ought to say, all right, organizing principle number one is we can never let this lunatic in the White House again. And so this clever eight dimensional chess will get them the nomination by rallying the troops, by having a left wing D.A. from New York attack, you know, uh, dangerous game. But I think there's some cynical Democrats playing it, hoping, Robert, your scenario works out. Kochel, where do you think the troops are going to end on this? Do you think it is a home run for for Trump if it turns into the tribal fight of the next three months?
0: Well, the tribal fight definitely helps Trump in in a way. I did a public service for you guys and listened to about a half hour of Bannon on this. And (laughs) it really is a, you know, it really is a rallying point. But two things can be true here. Uh, Number one, it can be prosecutorial overreach by the new york da who seems to be working in service of the the resistance but it can also be that you know it just it it highlights again sort of the seedy underside of of you know trump's character persona yeah porn and, and yeah how he yeah. yeah how he but but the the thing is that all that is already priced in on trump i think uh you know we had you know the the the, the abc the abc tape and and You know, you had the Stormy Daniels thing before it, it's been passed up by federal prosecutors. And now you've got, you know, a guy coming in to look, looks like what he's doing is sort of fan service for the never Trump resistance. Um, but at the end of the day, what we saw in the Des Moines register poll about a week and a half ago was that Trump's negatives are flexible. They rose uh, double digits in the last Iowa poll. And things like this are driving those numbers.
2: Yeah, the big trend is the big trend with Trump. Right, it's been going right. on since he lost. Uh, I will give a little free advice to the PR team for the New York DA. When you, when you decide to do your non-partisan political announcement of your prosecution, don't do it on the Al Sharpton
1: show, by the way. Just, just <laughs> a little pro tip. Well, I mean, look, I think the, the answer really to the question has to be obvious in that Trump thinks it helps Trump because the first we learned yeah. of the impending right. indictment and, and the arrest was off of his social network. So he he's certainly seeing that there's some advantage totally. politically. I, I, I don't know whether there's any advantage legally I, in doing this. It certainly has created a circus around him. Again, I think it floods the zone into now people want to know what Speaker McCarthy thinks they want to know what. Uh, Mike Pence and Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis think about Donald Trump. And so I do think there's, you know, there's definitely a stabilizing impact for for Trump. Again, I, I think, as we talked about the Georgia case, which seems big. And I think even just in the last week, we've got tape
2: of Trump muscling the Republican Secretary of State to steal the election for him. I mean, that's, you know, a jury of chimps are going to hear that and think, wow, this
1: is a problem. Well, and just in the last week, it was uncovered that an additional call came from Trump to the Speaker of the House in Georgia. So there's there's clearly stuff happening in the Georgia grand jury that's newer than we knew about. Um, and then again, you've got the documents case, as Dave mentioned, you've got, you've got the lingering, um, sort of January 6th, uh, investigation. So I, I, I do think this is going to be interesting. Trump remember was preemptive and said, Hey, I'm, I'm not going to drop out if I'm indicted. So I, I think this is, th- this benefits him because look, he, he loves being the center of attention. And I think that's most where he thrives. Center of attention on his terms now. Look, they're out to get me. Exactly. And by the
2: way, we should say in defense of our many friends who are indicted former politicians that an indictment is not a
1: conviction. <laughs> Th- that public service <laughs> having been done, so don't sue us. Did that just flash up on your screen as you were like uh, on your practice statement, like that uh, that you're you're filling out for your client?
2: I, I've got an AI bot here for the <laughs> slander meter that pops up once in a while. Sue Gibbs. Uh, so <laughs> here's one for you guys. I. Agree agree, Robert, that the Trump guys think this is a big win. They, they're almost like desperately grabbing it now, like fi- a lifeline. And so they did the old briar patch strategy, which is, what I really want to know is, where's DeSantis on this? Thinking that they were forking him, where he either had to say, hands off Trump, or uh, I hate Trump, put him in jail, and therefore blow a massive part of the Republican primary electorate. So let's listen to what I'm, after what I'm sure was a long session in the DeSantis what the hell do we say department uh, at his statement, because he tries to dance and and he tries to move it to another topic that resonates with Republican primary voters. Let, let's listen to Governor DeSantis. So I've seen rumors swirl. I have not seen any facts uh, yet. And so I don't know what's gonna happen, but I do know this, the the Manhattan district attorney is a Soros-funded prosecutor. And so he, like other Soros-funded prosecutors, they weaponize their office to impose a political agenda on society at the expense of the rule of law and public safety. And look, I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I just – I can't speak to that. He does the old, well, I haven't read the details, but I sure hate Soros prosecutors, which is is a code thing for these. The, there's been a wave of progressive prosecutors, which is a thing in the Republican Party. We have one here in L.A., George Gascon, who uh, I can hardly wait to see what he does with my home invaders, who uh, their trials start soon. Uh, I'm sure they'll all get a, a four-course meal and a self-improvement pamphlet rather than hard jail time. But... <laughs> Uh, that, that so he's trying to move it to a wider issue, and then he dropped that sex bomb at the end to remind Kochel's <laughs> friends in Iowa that we
1: this guy's a perv, not a president. Not a bad slogan. Will it work. There must be. Uh, I love. I will say Republicans. I, I I revere the 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 talking points that must go out simultaneous to this, where that you know like. George soros funded political district attorney liberal woke i mean it's just it's like you almost you you know he he hit all of the the hot buttons I will say it was, and I laughed out loud when i when I heard this clip because just the way he kind of just under the ribs slight you know pushes the knife in to say look I, I don't I don't know the details of how you pay off a porn star to cover up uh I'm an not gonna make an is, issue out of my porn mongering <laughs> yeah. opponent's obsession with slipping <laughs> money to women of ill repute right which I do think you know and Dave you, you know this better than than any of us on the phone but the even Iowa evangelicals are an enormous part and will be an enormous
0: part of who has a say in this the, the first caucus. Yeah, let's not forget they powered Ted Cruz to a win in the Iowa caucuses in in 2016 Mm. Uh, to complete my Bannon report, though. You can tell (laughs) how much this thing cut because they focused on that comment for about 20 minutes and compared it to Scott Walker uh, saying in a debate, you know, we don't need an apprentice in the White House. And they sort of equated that to a campaign ending attack and and. And so th- that's where they're going with this is that this this is it's all over for DeSantis now because he uttered that <laughs> phrase. And it was uh, interesting to see how much, uh, you know, the real, you know, MAGA devotees were were seizing on that and saying what a huge mistake it was, which, you know, I mean, it, it you know, it it's telling on themselves that they think that that was, a, you know, a terrible <laughs> mistake by DeSantis.
2: Yeah. But if you're you know, the problem is and I think DeSantis has struggled from this. You can't beat Trump by being a dime store version of Donald Trump. You know, you're kind of either in or you're out. You don't have to attack him. The smarter move is what the what I call September candidates who may emerge later, because I think the party wants to move beyond Trump. He's got a knot of support. He's a thing. Maybe that knot will grow off this. I don't think long term it will. Then you got to Sanders, who was the proof of concept that you know. Think about it. Back two years ago, you couldn't stand up and say, "Hey, I think I may run for president." He would have been stoned. How dare you? Now, now it's wide open. People accept it. So DeSantis proved that. But the second look on DeSantis and stumbles like Ukraine um, and and DeSantis's inability strategically to find his I'm not Trump, but he did some good things lane or whatever uh, is a weakness. They're going to look for somebody else. And they're they're all doing the move beyond Trump argument, which is where I think DeSantis ought to go, because just being almost Trump gives Trump the power to kill him,
1: which is what he's doing or trying to do which is what I think is the the brilliant thing about what Trump is trying to do is it, it's hard to move past him if you rally around him every time he gets indicted. Right. So let, let's suppose yeah, yeah. let's suppose it isn't just this one, but it happens in Georgia and it happens with a special counsel. I don't know why somebody to your point, Murphy, doesn't say, look, look, you know, if you're a Republican, look, we may like what he what he stands for and what he does. But we can't win an election like this. We just can't win an election with a three-time indicted, you know, it's time to pick somebody different. To your point, I don't know, It's at some point somebody's going to have to make that argument because as I've said this a bunch of times, even though Ted Cruz won in Iowa, first it started with Ted Cruz and then it happened with Marco Rubio, they tried to out-Trump Trump. And we, you know, again, as I've said a thousand times, Trump's really good at playing Donald Trump. He's way better at playing Donald Trump than anybody else is at that.
0: Yeah, we we'll are see. I've been on the ground in Iowa for years now. I've been listening to people kind of in anticipation of this whole race. And, you know, you see national polling. Trump seems to have had a, a good couple of months here. Um, but the number of people in places like Iowa and New Hampshire where the real work gets done who are open to somebody else is growing. Um, you know, Trump might hold on to that 25, 30, maybe even a little higher than that base but that means there's, you know, 70% of the people out there who are ready for something new some this is definitely getting, you know, the the most attention right now by far. But, you know, we've seen these things before. That was Scott Walker too in, in 2015. Yeah. There's an ebb and flow to all of this. I do think the first visit by DeSantis to Iowa, which is book tour it's pre-campaign, so we, right. we don't really know what the campaign looks like yet, but the book tour was pretty darn successful. It was a big crowd. He had Governor Reynolds there with him. They ate it up. Uh, the coverage out of it was fantastic, and there is a demand built up um, that you know, I, I, you know, he, he, obviously he's got to come in in a campaign and live up to the hype. But that's that's on them to to be able to do that. But it is sure set up for someone like DeSantis, who's you know who's going to have a lot of money, who's got a great record. And by the way, I, I made the point in a couple of interviews I did around that time. The Florida story and the Iowa story are actually pretty similar. You know, two governors embattled during COVID, attacked by national media. Um, they both won their elections by, you know, just a, a a cup, a point or two, uh, or I guess three, three points in case of Reynolds in, in 2018 and come along in 2022. They both win by almost 20 points. Mm. And it's a, it's a, there, there's a something going on. The, the red wave hit Iowa, hit Florida Mm. on very similar leadership and very similar messages. And I think DeSantis does have that as a, as an opportunity to come into Iowa and say, "Look, I did in a big, difficult state what your governor here did." It it proves the point. Uh, you know, we can win with this message. This is the message, um, and and I think the you know there's a lot of upside opportunity for Desantis in Iowa right now. And uh, you know, we'll just see how this goes once he actually gets into the race. But the demand is definitely there. So, Murphy,
1: a great segue into let's dive into Iowa. The ground is extremely hard and
2: frozen now, having filmed many spots there. But no, <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, let's do the deep dive in the Iowa caucus.
1: Go ahead, Robert. And then I have a question for David. To me, and, and you both have, have, have done this on the Republican side. I've done it on, on the Democratic side. But to me, it seems like Iowa is going to be enormous for Republicans this year. Because to, to your the point yeah, you first just made, blood. David. It's the first race and and I think if you if you think about this Trump probably goes in the presumptive favorite at the moment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: DeSantis though, um if you look at the the Des Moines Register poll has almost an equal number of favorable and yet 20% of Republicans don't aren't sure and don't know. So he's got real big room to grow, mm-hmm. but it seems to me and and walk us through this day because somebody's going to win that caucus yep. and become either the solidified front runner or the new front runner. Somebody's going to lose, right? Donald, yep. Don, if Donald Trump finishes his second. Everyone's going to be wondering, okay, is this the beginning of the end? If DeSantis finishes his the second, they'll say, boy, he was really kind of set up. To your point, he had all the money and he couldn't put it together. Uh, to me, it's just a huge, huge thing. And just so everyone knows, because this is the thing I'm going to harp on for the next 18 months. There's going to be a lot of interesting national polling, and you can look at trends. It's not how we nominate in parties. Right. It, 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 oh, totally <laughs>
2: true. The Milt Gertzman rule, believe no national poll till after the first primary and caucus.
1: Yeah, and it's going to be, it's a delegate process that starts in Iowa, for Republicans, yep, yep. goes to New Hampshire. That's how we do this. It isn't some USA Today national poll. No offense to USA Today and the others who do national polls. But Dave, wh- how, how big is Iowa this year? Well let me let me interrupt before David starts to
2: set him up perfectly. And okay. David you can say Murphy you're wrong you've been wrong for 30 years. <laughs> Murphy the, you've been wrong for 30 I'll say. The it. the the, <laughs> the Iowa caucus half the business is done during the last 10% of the calendar of yep. Iowa caucus days. The early days are important because you want to set up that 10 but we have had a lot of kings of Iowa in the summer who aren't kings uh, when people actually caucus. So uh, keep in mind, even the Iowa polling now What it's showing is the guy they know best, Trump, there's plenty of fatigue. And remember, last time when Trump came in second, he did it with 24% of the vote. So Iowa has never been Trump crazy. You know, there were about six candidates, and the top three got 27, 24, 23, uh, those being Cruz, Trump, Rubio. So, David, before you answer all this and educate our listeners, I would ask you to start with maybe three minutes on how it works, what the Iowa caucus is, why it's different. You know, Iowa caucus 101, because we've got some newbies who may not be the grizzled old uh, political hacks we are. And then then uh, tell us how you think it could transpire.
0: Well, I used to love talking about the Democratic caucuses because of how crazy that system is. <laughs> but since, you know, Gibbs and his party, you messed all that up. And the last bit of Obama fairy dust has kind of been blown out of Iowa now. We've got just a Republican caucus, which is part of the reason I think Robert why the the Iowa caucuses are going to be bigger than ever because they're going to have their own stage on the GOP side, nothing else to compete with it. Um the way it works is you have about uh, 1700 precincts in Iowa. They all meet as the sort of starting point for the delegate process, the nominating process to go nominate delegates to the county district and state convention which then Nominates delegates to go on to the national convention, and that will be to vote for a particular candidate for president. So um, it actually started in 1972. A young campaign manager for for um, George McGovern, Gary Hart, uh, decided that he needed something to, to pump up George McGovern before the New Hampshire primary, and he picked the Iowa caucuses because it was the only process that started ahead of New Hampshire. Uh, and so for many, many years now, people have used Iowa kind of as in Iowa, New Hampshire, kind of being the twin starting gates. Uh, folks meet in these precinct caucuses. They usually take place in a church basement, maybe in a diner, maybe in a high school library. Uh, they actually have to come in with their preference. They, they get up and speak on behalf of the candidate that they support. Um, On the Republican side, we just do a a basic straw poll. So people fill out on a piece of paper. It's either a ballot or a blank piece of paper. You just write down who you're for, gets tallied up, gets phoned into state headquarters, and then we release the raw vote. And, um, you know, it's grown over the years. Uh, About 85,000 votes in 1996 was the low watermark. 186,000 votes cast in in 2016 was the high watermark. Um, a lot more Republicans in Iowa than there used to be. It really is a state that trended, uh, red. We're something like 680,000 Republicans in Iowa now. It used to be about, uh, 80,000 less than that. So it's going to be a big turnout again. There's a lot of interest. You're going to see a lot of money too. spent on a cold night, probably mid January. Yeah. It could be 10 degrees. Yeah, but in Iowa, that's like fifty-five and sunny. I mean, you're, you're a <laughs> sure. hearty bunch out there. You'll still see people in shorts come to those meetings. You bet. Um, <laughs> so, look, I think you know it's going to be bigger than ever. There's going to be a lot of money spent. But Mike, you're absolutely right. The money that gets spent in June and July, it'll it'll have an impact. It might drive some numbers. It might drive negatives on some candidates. But I did the the Romney race in 2012. We had six people. Leading the Iowa caucuses, and none of them were Mitt Romney until you know we got into into January third. I think was the was the um, the caucus, and we ended up winning by eight votes on that night. And then a couple of weeks later, they reversed it and said.
2: Rick Santorum is now pounding on the door of my studio, saying, "No, no, it was I actually run by by twenty six. So you and he can settle it in the parking lot." But yeah, it's the classic story. Um, you know, the late surge is a thing yep. in Iowa. You have to pay yep. the dues by being there. Now, one of the tricks you do, and you remember we did this we you know uh, back in 95 in that lower turnout one with Lamar Alexander. You spend a little money in the summer to move the register poll, not because it means you're going to win the caucus, because you get a clip, you can go to your donors and yep. say, ignore the 3% national poll, I'm surging in Iowa. So there's some, the Iowa caucus is hilarious because on one hand, all the slickers come in from Chicago or wherever Gibbs is and uh, and you know think, oh, we're going to roll these Iowans, we're going to organize, we're going to move their polls around to impress our donors in New York. Uh, on the other hand, it's the music man. The Iowans take you to the, you know, you find yeah. out they're smarter um, yeah. than anybody. And so they soak the Nationals. So there's <laughs> commerce involved, there's the media trying to have the whole campaign in the middle of the summer, so they're manipulated by all this trickery because the National donors are watching and no National donors, no money and you die. So it, it is a marvelous multidimensional thing. But in voter land, it, it's the last 30 days that that is where the energy is. So that means it'll be excited. And that means if you're Tim Scott or Glenn Youngkin or Nikki Haley, um, you know, late is your window. If you can, if, if you can, it, timing is everything. And so I, you can't rule out the yeah. non-Trump new faces
1: yet. Well, let me ask a question on that for, for both of you, but Dave, I really want to hear your thinking on this because one of the things that Trump people are are telling everybody, and you see this in the reporting, is they're gonna have a technical operation inside of Trump world that supersedes anything that was, was any apparatus that existed in twenty sixteen or twenty twenty. And I agree with both of you that look you wanna catch you wanna catch that big wave the last ten days. Uh, and, and you want, once you get that wave and it crests, boy, you're hoping that's a caucus night, but to, to be able to take advantage of that wave requires having that organization in, uh, in Iowa, because you're going to be phone banking the same people every week for 50 weeks. You're going to be checking in with them. What can we do to get your support? What issue do you want to know more about? You know, if you're an influencer in the set, you're probably going to get a couple of calls from these guys. You're going to get invited to all this sort of stuff. Who do you see is is maneuvering to set up the type of organization that you're going to need to catch that wave? Because I think if you don't have that organization, that wave can pass you by. And is Trump ever capable of organizing a
2: technical campaign?
0: Well first of all we have to acknowledge that he has access to more data from iowa than any other candidate will ever have because you know he's run there twice in the general election and they you know they ran a pretty sophisticated operation they won uh in the general election so they they have all kinds of id information on pretty much every republican voter in the state so there's that um what i've seen this cycle is a much later start to all of this than I've, than I've ever seen before. You know, most of these campaigns don't really have staff yet on the ground. There are, you know, a lot of conversations happening. A few folks are getting hired here and there. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know yet who's gonna have the technical infrastructure, uh, to do this. Like I said, Trump starts with a a huge advantage just because he's been on the ballot there a couple of times and he's gone through a caucus already and you know everybody has an opinion about donald trump that's the other thing there's nobody out there to be convinced one way or the other on him um so you know desantis obviously has the the financial wherewithal to build up an infrastructure to run a really effective caucus campaign but look you know tim scott i think he he starts with the most federal dollars of anybody he has got 23 million dollars in his federal account on hand that's a lot of money to do a lot of work with on on a campaign um i assume that all these campaigns will kind of know how to get in there most of the folks that are running them have done iowa time before they've been operatives at you know at at the state level or you know even field staff level before uh in iowa so so they know the game um and like you said these people are very late deciding um you're going to take all summer you're going to have a couple of debates there's going to be an overriding national narrative that come from the debates you're going to go through things like you know, the, the Family Leader Forum with Bob Vander Plaats's group. You're going to see the Faith and Freedom Coalition dinner. Everybody, there'll be all kinds of cattle calls. You got the State Fair, which is coming up in August, one of the Don't greatest- Don't forget the days.
1: butter cow, for God's the sake. The butter cow,
0: <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, you
1: deep fried anything. Oh my God. I gained 20 pounds just walking around that day.
0: It's yeah. a cardiovascular event.
2: David, let me follow up with two connected questions about this. One, the old norm was about 120,000 voters participating. And yep. last time, one hundred and eighty-six, nine hundred, And you say about 600,000 hours in the state on registration. So one out of three. So it's not all the Republicans because turnout's right. important on that winter night. Now, with the Democrats cratering, but the caucus embedded in Iowa's civic self-image, do you think a mm-hmm. bunch of Democrats have it's their duty to caucus, not hardcore partisan Democrats, just good government, Iowa, you know, it's the nicest state in the world, will show up. Is that an extra 50,000 caucus votes that are going to be bored because they don't have a Democratic caucus uh, and they might show up? you see that phenomenon in New Hampshire with independents voting primary? That's how John McCain won in 2000. That's question one. And question two, in the normal Iowa caucus electorate, what percent do you think is fundamentally Christian, social, conservative votes? uh you know Mm -hmm. i i I, i've heard a lot of numbers
0: i remember from my experience there i have a theory but i want to hear yours on the first question uh the Iowa caucuses are open to anybody as of right now exactly Uh, we we do have a lot of independents who come in democrats have had the same if you know the, the 2008 caucuses which robert knows a lot about huge influx of voters into the democratic caucus because it was a very exciting primary um there there is a chance this time that the party will change the rules so the Democrats can't cross over. We don't know yet how that's gonna play out, but the, this, is a, this is not a primary. This is a party-run event. Uh, the, the rules are driven by the party committee. Uh, so we'll see what happens there. Um, I, you know, I, I, Are there independents who will come in? Absolutely. It's, it, it always swells the, the registration roles of both parties to have the caucuses because people wanna go participate. It's a cultural event now in Iowa um so we'll we'll see how much that grows, and we'll see whether or not Democrats come over it it It's happened in the past if you remember mike the the primary we worked on uh, Branstad and Grandy, a bunch of Democrats came over into the open primary and voted against our governor Branstad now yeah that was that a good one thing for won. Gopher. We had a little tight primary there we did uh so <laughs> as to the evangelical vote, I mean there as we kind of look at all this stuff, they're probably forty forty five percent Uh, are pretty active social conservatives vote on things like abortion, uh, marriage, that sort of thing. Um, but you know, Iowa Republicans, you know, 70 or 80% proclaim to be Christian. Uh, it's, you know, there's, there's gradations of all of this. Um, you know, but the reason you have Mike Huckabee winning with no money and no organization, the reason you had Rick Santorum basically in a dead heat with Mitt Romney was because it was powered by. This very committed and connected group of social conservatives. Uh, so, you know, I think where they go um, and and there's a lot of signalers, you know, to them, it's, it's, it's what some of the leadership does. It's kind of, uh, you know, the Trump loyalty has been there, but I think that this group also has a potential of just saying, let's get past all this stuff. We don't agree with the personal life. We're going to go with someone new. And if they get together on that, um, whomever they end up going to and they, they move late and they move as a group, uh, I think that'll be who wins the Iowa caucuses in 2024.
2: Does Pence have an angle there, at least to be kind of a polling guard? You know,
0: maybe. Look, I, I was surprised to see how effective his visits were. He definitely gets a good reception in the room. Um, and, and, you know, he's a true believer. I think they like him i do think that they you know they also live in an information bubble though that is very pro trump and as such it's pretty much anti-pence as well so i think you know he's kind of swimming upstream a little bit against all of that stuff from january 6th and now he's stepped out and been more critical of the former president and i don't know how that's ultimately going to play because you know i mean he he can play that card but the thing about trump is he's he does dominate everything. It's, it's almost like a distortion field over, over <laughs> everything else you're talking about. It all has to kind of filter through the Trump lens, what you say about him, what you think about him, whether you defend him or don't. And I think, I think that's going to be the biggest challenge for Pence. And you can kind of see him trying to figure that out as he goes along.
1: Well, and you saw in the Des Moines Register poll, he, of the four candidates that they did favorables on, yep. um, DeSantis, Trump, Haley, and Pence... Pence's favorability was down from the last time that it was he was in the poll and had the highest unfavorable ratings of any of those four candidates. So, and kind of low favorability among evangelicals, even though I think he's probably he's very much a self-identified evangelical. So, it's going to be interesting. I want to make one point because you know we talk a little bit about organizing. The big difference between the Republican side and the Democratic side in the Iowa caucus, as Dave pointed out, is. It's essentially a straw poll on the Republican side. The, the challenge on the Democratic side when when the caucus existed the way it did and the reason why you had to have such an organization on that Democratic side is you had viability numbers. So if you mm-hmm. go into if if we all caucused and, and let's say, you know, 20 people showed up. If you didn't have fifteen percent inside of your caucus, then you had to. You could either step out, not vote, or you could go align with your second choice. So there was a real big organizational pull that hey, like uh, you know, I know you support. I know you support this person, but hey, if that person's not viable, will you support us? That's a big, big deal. We used to be on the Democratic side.
2: Yeah, no. Look, it counted to have the local veterinarian in your corner on the third ballot, saying you want me out at your farm at two in the morning. Guess what? You're now with, <laughs> you know, you're going to join me here
1: with. Uh, How Dave can John there's Evans. always like what what seems like a, a a a dark foreboding image on all of your uh, your stories about this? I'm kidding. Well, <laughs> one question for Dave though, I'm if you certainly look at the Des Moines poll, you've got. Trump and DeSantis at huge numbers in terms of favorability it, it It seems to me like every caucus there's somebody that has sometimes it's just a week or two or some sometimes it's somebody who comes roaring out of Iowa um and places in a in a in a position that's much stronger than people perceive because to your point, they're looking at these national polls, and all of a sudden, Iowa sort of sets the ranking. Do you see somebody – would it make a lot of sense for a Nikki Haley to just camp out in Iowa and say, you know what, I'm going to surprise everybody and finish a stronger third or maybe sneak into a second uh, and then come roaring out of Iowa and into a place like New Hampshire? Because I think sometimes people get pulled into, I've got to run – 30 contests all at the same time and don't understand that that the the conventional wisdom on caucus night is going to be totally reset. As I said, somebody's going to win. Somebody's going to finish second, as Ricky Bobby said, if you ain't first, you're last. Uh, and then I think somebody's going to have their moment in the sun. Do you, do you think somebody mm-hmm. goes and parks themselves out in Iowa?
0: Absolutely. Because it, it's um, been proven to have worked in the past for someone like Jimmy Carter. It worked for yeah. Huckabee, worked for Santorum. All those people were launched into another stratosphere because of their result in Iowa, and you don't have to win to do that. You're right; everything is measured against expectations. Totally. Right now, the expectations are Donald Trump is going to be, you know, the nominee because he's got big national poll numbers, he's got an Iowa track record, and you know he's going to win every contest. That's you know that gets turned on its head immediately, like you say, on the night of the caucuses. Um, it, you know, different strategies for different people make a lot of sense. Um, you know, Nikki Haley would be a great person to go. Number one, she's Iowa, which ha- having not elected a woman as governor, senator, or member of Congress until 2014 when Joni Ernst shattered the glass ceiling. Now we've got, you know, th- uh, two women in Congress, Joni Ernst as our senator, and the best governor we've ever had, Kim Reynolds. And so Nikki Haley can come in and, and ambassador
2: of, to China's online too, but keep going. <laughs>
0: <laughs> my old client, your old client too. Yes, I won't, I won't too. turn you in. I love Terry instead. but look what Kim Reynolds has done. Uh, I mean, she's, she's been a great governor <laughs> um, anyway. So I think she's got a great story. She very much identifies with kind of the zeitgeist in Iowa, the, the, the people who have been getting elected lately. Uh, they all like her. Um, you know, I just, I don't know if it's her. I don't know if it's uh, someone else. Could be Tim Scott. Could be Glenn Young. Could, could yeah. be Tim Scott. Could be about anybody. But I would say leveraging Iowa is the best opportunity most of these candidates have to really, you know, cause an upset and get some big momentum going into New Hampshire. And then New Hampshire listens to Iowa. Sometimes, sometimes New Hampshire says, "Nope, we're going to go this way." Right, but definitely get into that conversation. (laughs) Well,
1: oh, I know.
2: The joke in New Hampshire is they grow corn, we go presidents. And let me let me dive in on the expectations thing because I don't buy the theory that your goal in Iowa is to win. Your goal in Iowa is to wound somebody bigger than you and yep. then have a way to leverage New Hampshire. So let's look at history. And this is the Christian factor, too. In the, in 2016, as David knows well, Cruz got 27. Trump got 24. The Christian Cruz beat Trump, the non-Christian. In t- 2012, the top two were Santorum, the Christian, and Mitt. You can argue who was in first. I'll go with Kochel. But. Then in in 2008, Huckabee, the Christian run, excuse me, won with 34 percent, Mitt, the regular at 25. So whenever a Christian and a regular, even if the regular is second, go to New Hampshire, New Hampshire relies on the great secret New Hampshire campaign slogan of screw Iowa, with all due respect. And the Christian dies. Cruz died in New Hampshire. Santorum died in New Hampshire. Huck died in New Hampshire. So I think in this one, if you can wound Trump, who only did 24% last time, he did well in the general, but I was more Republican now in general elections than when it was a swing state, even leaning a little Democrat when Kochel and I started out there, you're you're set up pretty well. And then, of course, South Carolina is big. So if I'm Tim Scott uh, or Glenn Youngkin and I can have Trump come out of there wounded, and my 19 puts me right behind Trump's 20 with five other people. Not bad for me. Not bad right. at all. No, that's
0: right. You know, they're, they're, they're combined. Yeah, you got to have another place to go, though. And so right. it, w- whether the play is New Hampshire or whether it's jump over New Hampshire and go to South Carolina and get the win. Like South Carolina, I, I think, lately has really been the ball game for both parties. Yep. Um, and so the best way to get to South Carolina may be a win in Iowa it doesn't have to be a win in new hampshire yeah, so you
2: can arguably get a second bite in if yep. you're the christian ish but so far it hasn't worked that that well but you know the past is not controlling the future this could be different but i well, would i would love to be the expectations breaking number 2 in iowa with trump having his arm cut off because what i was really about is the first big test of trump 2.0 I think. And then who wins the primary to be the not Trump? Is it DeSantis? Is it Scott? Is it Haley? Is it Dave Kochel? You know, whatever the candidate field looks like at the end of the year.
0: I wasn't going to announce till the end of the show, Mike.
2: (laughs) Well, I was going to run in New Hampshire under the slogan, eliminate the
1: middleman and make a documentary out of it. But I'm I'm too old and grumpy. (laughs) I'd watch it.
0: No.
2: (laughs) Well,
1: but I think to your point, uh, Mike, I don't think Trump can finish second in Iowa. Right.
0: I mean, no, no, I think it's deadly
1: for him
2: unless all of a sudden he sweeps New Hampshire because the press loves giant stumbles. Love that. And they love comeback. Hillary. Remember, you guys won Iowa. Oh, that's it. And then Hillary clobbered you in New
0: Hampshire and she was back in the race for the rest of time. Oh, I remember. Well, you got to get both. If if Trump loses Iowa and New Hampshire, what's the argument? Yeah, no, then he's done. It melts away
1: quickly. And that really could happen, I think. I think so too. I think there's some also unreal expectations for DeSantis. I, I think if he finishes second in Iowa, he better finish a very close second. And the chances are that those numbers, as you pointed out, Murphy, will be somewhat close just because you're gonna have a bunch of people splitting up vote. But you you gotta DeSantis better have a good second day story too, because I think yeah. there's there's a lot of people that have built him up as, oh, he's the one who's gonna inherit this. Trump's just on this irreversible decline and if if Trump wins he's pretty he he comes out of there a bit strengthened again it'll be interesting to watch it always is interesting to watch kind of what's that kind of next domino uh and and who picks up and has yeah. that narrative in in New Hampshire and as you said it can be very contrarian we felt it with Obama was that New Hampshire was going to say on behalf of the country? Wait a minute, wait a minute. We're not. <laughs> there's his. He, this is a young guy. He hasn't been on the national scene. He hasn't been in the Senate very long. Let's slow this rocket ship down and have a have a real race yeah. of it. And and you know, I'll never forget coming out of the hotel that morning. It was raining. My shoe broke. My. F- Foot's wet. It was just a terrible day. And Obama looked at me and says, You know what? I think this New Hampshire loss is going to be a good thing. And I said, Okay, um, I'm fascinated to hear the reasoning there, big guy. <laughs> and it, and it was. He said basically, like, look, I think New Hampshire basically told us that there nobody's going to hand this to us. We've got to go out and earn it. We've got to go, now we got to go to Nevada, then we got to go to South Carolina. Then we got to go to, you know, throughout the South on Super Tuesday. And, you know, he was very zen about the whole thing while I was, you know, muttering. My foot's wet, and I. I, I can't. How uh, how zen was Michelle? <laughs> Less so, um, but but again, I remember you know knocking on his door that night, uh, puff and me, and uh, you know telling him he wasn't going to win, and, and you know he, he didn't throw anything, he didn't get he didn't get upset, he just was like, okay, hmm, uh, didn't you know? I don't think he planned on it, but but boy, by the next morning, he'd rationalized that. Um, it's a good thing that there can be long campaigns to nominate. Well, uh, yeah,
2: but he also knew in his back pocket, as all you guys did. We had a little insurance policy called African American voters in the Southern primary who were waiting to surge to you. I think it's a pretty simple formula in the end, with a million nuances. You start out in a crowd of either party. You start out with six or seven chuckleheads all running for president. Then somebody becomes the king based on polling. Could be bullshit. Could be not. In in Iowa and New Hampshire, one of the two you got to beat the king. In McCain two thousand, we knew we had no prayer in Iowa. We didn't go there. We thought we can ambush the king in New Hampshire and beat him. And that that didn't win us the nomination, but it it, it put us in the race. Yeah. Became a two man thing. Same yeah. deal here. You're going to have to beat Trump in Iowa or New Hampshire. Um, or if somebody beats Trump, you beat them. But there, there, there's got to be a corpse after the second one from a a high position and that's been true through all these things historically so Iowa, get your get your your sharp corn scythes out because it's your job to kill trump (laughs) david it's on you guys save the country and so on me one one exit question for
1: both of you all on iowa so you've got an evangelical dominated iowa caucus Maybe yep. not dominated, but forty percent. That could be down to
2: the thirties if you have fifty thousand normal Democrat leaning right. Indies show up. True, it's going to be a yep. little different. One, we haven't had a one way caucus in a long time here fair. in a, in a double fair. open deal.
1: But but do right. you do you have concerns that in in a in a heated, big 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 stakes uh, Iowa caucus? That a Republican nominee on things like abortion and culture gets pushed really 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 far to the right and has will'll have a tough time in Iowa in a general election but might have a tougher time in a swing state in a general election
0: do you, Do you worry about that coming out of this so I'll take this one. We used to think that was the case, watching Mitt Romney get pushed to the right on immigration and a bunch of other things. I don't think this is going to be driven by issues in the caucuses it's going to be in part driven by identity, but a lot of it's just going to be, who do we think can win? Yeah. Um, there's a big constituency in, in Iowa for that. These are, you know, caucus goers and same with New Hampshire primary voters. They are the ultimate political pundits. They consider themselves kind of semi-professional in this. And so a lot of what they're looking at is who do I think has the legs to take this thing the whole way? Um, yeah, there are issue voters. There are going to be some pandering, uh, in Iowa and in New Hampshire. Uh, you're going to have a big ethanol question, you know, asked to everybody. And, you know, maybe we'll see somebody decide to do what Cruz did, which is say, nope, you know what, I'm I'm just not going to support ethanol. And he went on to win the Iowa Cox's. Um I don't think we're going to see that happen. Um, There definitely is a drag to the right, but it's not one I think that has a lot of big general election import. Interesting.
2: We will be back with David Kochel for more Iowa analysis later in the year. But right now, the clock keeper tells me it's time to hit the music. All right. If you have a question for the hacks, email us at our secret bat email for mailbag questions, hacksontap at gmail.com, hacksontap at gmail.com. Okay, here we go. Our first question for Brother Kochel. So Nancy wants to know, why is Ron DeSantis getting so much airtime with political pundits when he hasn't even announced he's running for office? Why isn't Nikki Haley getting more media attention? She's actually running.
0: Yeah, this is a great question. Uh, Look, Nancy, he's getting a lot of airtime with pundits because, number one, during COVID, he was attacked by the national media, uh, you know, given terrible nicknames and, and, you know, They really took after him and kind of elevated him. He also is really good at picking fights. Uh, it's one of the things I think he learned watching Trump. Uh, he knows how to, how to, how to pick a fight from behind a podium and go after it. Um, and also there appears to be, you know, a little bit of, uh, affinity for DeSantis at Fox News. Um, you know, they put him on, I think I saw a graphic recently. He's getting. I think two or three times the mentions of the rest of the field together on Fox. So um, they clearly uh, think he's good television and um, have been pushing him. Why isn't Nikki Haley getting more media attention? Well, number one, she hasn't been in any big national fights lately. Um, I think she's going to have to prove it on the ground. She's going to have to go earn it in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina. And so, you know, there is a big kind of conservative media machine. That right now appears to favor DeSantis, um, you know, and it's not just Nikki Haley not getting the attention. It's pretty much the rest of them. Um, and as it sets up now, it's it's kind of a Trump-DeSantis contest, at least for the time being. I think Mike's right that, uh, you know, there will be a lot of opportunities later for the field to, to shift and shuffle based on how people perform in debates. But this is what we've got now. DeSantis is going to get the, the lion's share of attention that isn't going to Trump, at least until the dynamic changes.
2: Yeah, the other problem Nikki has is the Christian vote there knows that when you sprinkle her of holy water, you know, it bursts into flames. Oh, cheap shot, Murphy. Cheap shot. Enough with your vendetta. Okay, enough of that. Baron Von Gibbs. Kim has a question for you. I want to know, Kim writes, what are the reasons politicians run for president when there is no, all caps,
1: chance of them winning? Well, Kim, first (laughs) of all, there are a lot of uh, Would be presidents who wake up every morning, uh, look in the mirror, see a future president, and never contemplate the fact that somehow <laughs> their their run is steep and the mountain is too hard to climb. Right. So first of all, I, I there's a lot of people that run thinking, hey, you know what? There's a lot of people that that Jimmy Carter got elected, Barack Obama got elected. Maybe I can catch lightning in a bottle. I, I'm going to go for it. The the other thing I think that people do is is. And you've seen this; you can it can launch you into kind of a second career, a bit of 15, 15 more minutes, if you will, of fame. Uh, I think it also uh, understand that whoever becomes the nominee in the Republican Party is going to need a vice president. If they win, they're going to need a cabinet, and this is a good place to prove your mettle in a campaign. Um, again, whether you could be or, or a, a would be pre- vice presidential nominee or a would be cabinet member, I will say I think. The challenge I have for politicians that run for president is I think this is, for the most part, a process that chews people up. And there are very, very few exceptions. I would say McCain in 2000, probably the biggest exception of somebody who comes into running for president and goes through this process and comes out bigger than when they started. McCain certainly did in 2000. But for the most part, a lot of people go into this process and they get sliced in half. People are like, gosh, this person could be great. They'd be an amazing president. They blow up in Iowa. They never make it to New Hampshire. Uh, they're, They're dead and buried. And all of a sudden, the national media is like, "Oh yeah, remember when that person was hot? Yeah, that that whole thing got solved." So I think there's a lot of ego involved, uh, but it's also a, a way to launch a second career, to get a second breath, and and to maybe end up in somebody's cabinet.
2: They're also always the slickest operator down in Barneyville, where they're from. And then they get to the show and they look around and say, "Holy hell, there are a lot of these slick
0: operators." Um, you know, there's no no shortage of self regard. Well, you know, everybody wants that 9 p.m. slot at uh, Newsmax, so that's part of the reason they're doing (laughs) it, too. Not untrue. Not untrue. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Exactly.
1: There's some some gold at the end of some of those rainbows. Murphy, a great question for you from Leaf. He writes, which politician or candidate that you've worked with in the past would you say had the best sense of humor? Who have you worked for uh, uh, before that had no sense of humor? Wow,
2: best. There are a lot. You know, Mitt's a very funny guy backstage. Yeah, um, a lot of them are afraid to be funny in public. Uh, Spence Abraham is is very very funny, great sense of humor. Um, you know, there are a lot, but I would say the funniest cat, and it was dark humor, but funny was Bob Dole. Uh, I mean, publicly he was funny. I mean, I remember he had a funny uh, thing during Watergate when he was RNC chairman. Yeah, they asked me. You know, uh, Watergate happened under your watch, and I told him no, it was on my night off. And he takes a pause. I was pulling a job in Chicago, <laughs> so he. And but backstage, <laughs> it, when it came to like gallows humor and stuff like that, I remember once there was one senator who will not be mentioned, great patriot, nice guy, but a little mentally foggy. So one of us in the kind of Republican media consulting, the top couple of guys at the time, would get a call. Hold for Leader Dole. Hey, you got blank. Don't fuck up. You know, click. <laughs> and then you. I, so I went over to the Senate to get the news and, and get the shotgun marriage with this senator. Had to get reelected. And so Dole comes off the floor with Durenberger, Graham, and Warren Rudman. And he's like, all right, we got to find them, boys. You know, Dole was like the tough sergeant. You know, you know. I mean, and it was like, Rudman, you check the gym. Graham, you check the floor. Durenberger, check behind that plant. You know, I mean, it was just. <laughs> Dole was hip to the madness of all of it, and he was very funny. I remember in the in the one of the camp, they pointed this field director, and Dole was by Jiminy, which I loved he'd use the old language, you know, non-ironically, and uh, that idiot. Where'd you find him, the Hooskow? I mean, that clown lost 28 states for Dole. I mean, for, for Dole, now we're going to bring him in to lose the whole damn country. I mean, anyway, Dole was great and a great patriot, and I wish they still made him like that. Uh, as far as the not funny, um, some some good people just don't have a natural sense of humor. You know, they're, they're just, they kind of look at you. And there was – oh, God, I don't i don't want to insult anybody, but there was a very talented up-and-coming – I'm saving this for my upcoming memoirs, but so I'm not going to mention, but there was an upcoming politician, young, good-looking, hard charger, but super serious and had absolutely no sense of humor, would just stare at you. And then the computer would go off, oh, we made a joke, ha, 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 <laughs> you know. And it would, so uh, stay tuned for more about that, but – um I, I gotta give the gold to uh to to Dole both in front of the public but backstage where you're always caught in these crazy situations that somebody like Dole always had his feet on the floor. Um uh it could make incredible, incredible funny out of it. I last quick Dole story. So we're losing and Dick Werflin, a great great guy, I was very fond of Dick. A pollster shows up and to have the turn the campaign around plan and we're in this hotel suite in Illinois this is after New Hampshire and the thing is spiraling down. And this was a big turnaround. It was pre-PowerPoint. So Wirtham had these two guys in like cat suits who came to like hold the charts up. Senator Dole, I'm going to present to you our brilliant strategy to turn this campaign around about Super Tuesday. Operation Izuruku, named after the genius strategist Izuruku yamamoto who planned the attack on Pearl Harbor. guy dramatically turns the chart and Doe's like, what the hell? I was there. <laughs> that was so funny. I thought gonna kill him. So I want to end this thing with a free plug. Kachel, you've been following me around in politics for 30 damn years. Now you're doing a great podcast. It is called, it's basically, it's very smart. Rob Stutzman, another good friend of ours, political hack, and we mean hack with great affection in Sacramento, somebody else I've worked with a ton, they interview bartenders. We do. Now, they should be interviewing them about, like, how to meet girls in a bar, but instead they talk about politics, and I've been listening, I enjoy it, it's a great pod. Give us the title, because I'm going to mangle it, Koch.
0: It's just Highball Politics. And yeah, we're, we're, we're conducting poor man's focus groups around the country by talking to bartenders about what they hear, what they see in the bar. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of, we, we actually do focus on cocktails quite a bit. So that's pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. There's some booze instruction. I will tell you instruction.
2: Ask any bartender when you're doing high ball politics that after midnight, I think it's low ball politics, but I'm boom. (laughs) But check it out, folks. It's a great one. Thanks for the plug. Great to be with you, too. This was a fun one. Iowa is fascinating, and uh,
1: we're keeping an eye on it. It is. We'll hear more about this. We'll bring Dave back because I I think Iowa is going to be a humongous deal for Republicans this year. Let me end with
2: uh, put Koch on the spot a tiny bit because I can't resist. Uh, We'll tell Georgia stories, and I don't mean Georgia the state, Georgia the country, uh, next (laughs) time. But knowing we can't know, it's too early. There are too many unknowns. But if the Vegas line called you and says Trump has a good night in Iowa, either wins it or exceeds expectations, what's your over and under? I would say less than 50 percent that Iowa is a good story for Donald Trump, knowing what I know now, not knowing what I, what's going to happen.
0: There's a lot to be done between now and then. He's got to come in with super high expectations because he's a former president. He's won it twice in general election. I'd put it at somewhere sub 40 but close to 40. So I I don't, I don't, I I think there's a huge opportunity for somebody else in Iowa, whether it's DeSantis, Haley, Scott, and any of the others. I think there's a huge opportunity there and they need to make the best of it. Sage advice.
2: All right. With that, hecka Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.